Okay, welcome to Lecture 2 of Law 505. Today we are going to explore the fundamental institutions that comprise Canadian public law. We're talking about the Parliament and its components. We're talking about the executive and the courts, or the legislative, executive, and judicial branches of government. And we're also going to discuss at the end the topic of statutory interpretation. So starting in your book with Chapter 6, Parliament and its Components, we're going to talk a bit about what constitutes parliament. What are some of the key actors within the parliamentary system? What role does the queen play in Canadian public law? We're going to think a little bit about whether that role is appropriate within a modern constitutional democracy. We'll talk a bit about the Senate and what role it plays in the legislative process. And, and again, ask ourselves the question of whether that role is appropriate. And we're going to think about a interesting question that has serious political consequences of how are the boundaries drawn for the House of Commons? How do how is it decided which group of people will together select a member of parliament? And if you're aware of the problems around gerrymandering that there are in the United States, you can probably see how this question can have profound consequences for how the government functions. So while I said at the outset that there are three branches to the Canadian governance system, the executive, legislative, and judicial branches, there is also the question of the crown to deal with, and I'll deal with that at the outset. The crown is a concept that plays a specific and limited but important role within the Canadian framework. So the question, what is the crown, can get a somewhat cheeky answer. Um, in a 1978 English case, the uh, Lord Simon said, The crown as an object is a piece of jeweled headgear under guard at the Tower of London, but it symbolizes the powers of government which were formerly wielded by the wearer of the crown. So the crown within the Canadian framework, the Canadian public law framework, is a symbol of the powers of government. The crown has a role to play within two of the three branches of government in both the executive and legislative branches within the lawmaking process which we will get to later in this lesson we'll see the role of the crown in the parliamentary function in uh, granting royal assent to legislation and in the executive branch we'll see that executive powers claim to stem from the crown so the the crown is an important concept and it's an abstract concept, but it's also a real person. There is a Queen of England, and that Queen of England is the head of state of Canada. And when the United Kingdom changes its monarch, Canada changes its head of state. So the question of who will be Canada's head of state is governed by the United Kingdom law, the UK act of settlement explains the rules for who will be the monarch. The act of settlement says that the monarch will be determined by hereditary rules based on primogeniture. So that means the firstborn male child will have the claim to the throne. The act of settlement also bars Catholics from becoming or even marrying the monarch. So this leads to the funny well, not funny, but the interesting situation, interesting question of these seem to violate fundamental principles of Canadian law that we will be dealing with later in the course when we talk about the protected rights, the, the, the Constitutional Bill of Rights that is the Charter of Rights and Freedoms, which would not allow a law to favor male over female people and would not allow a law to bar people from holding an office because of their religion. And so the uh, question was raised in O'Donoghue in Canada, which is in your book um, on page 178, as to whether this act of succession is inconsistent with the Charter of Rights and Freedoms. And the court said no. The Act of Settlement, 1701, despite the problems vis-a-vis -vis Catholics and vis-a-vis -vis women. The act of settlement is part of the Constitution itself. The Constitution 
can't be declared unconstitutional. Why are the rules of succession the act of settlement part of the Canadian Constitution? Well, Justice Rouleau explains that Canada was established as a constitutional monarchy and the preamble to the Constitution Act 1867 provides for a desire to be federally united into one dominion under the crown of the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Ireland with a constitution similar in principle to that of the United Kingdom. So that's in the preamble to the Constitution Act of 1867. Furthermore, in the uh, Statute of Westminster in 1931 UK law, the UK provided that the British monarch would be the monarch of the various Commonwealth countries, including Canada, and that any changes to the rules of succession had to be agreed to by all members of the Commonwealth. So if we're going to change these you know, sexist and discriminatory rules as to who can be the monarch of the UK, there will have to be an agreement amongst all of the Commonwealth countries. So the court said that Canada cannot unilaterally change the rules of succession. And the statute of Westminster is part of the Canadian Constitution because the Constitution Act 1982 expressly says so. It is listed in a schedule to that Constitution Act 1982, which lists a number of different statutes that are explicitly referenced as part of the Canadian Constitution. And we'll talk more about that later in the course. This annex to the Constitution Act 1982, which brings various other documents into the constitutional framework. So the conclusion the court draws in O'Donoghue is that the rules of succession, flawed as they may be, cannot be susceptible to a charter challenge because that would be to challenge the Constitution itself as being unconstitutional, something that cannot be done. So, despite the, the sexist and despite the discriminatory nature of the rules of succession, they still operate in Canada, and Canada will still have an identity between its head of state and the United Kingdom monarch. So, the big thing to take away from that case, apart from the kind of cute idea that you can't say that part of the Constitution is unconstitutional, the big thing to take away is that the status of the queen, the individual queen or king, the monarch from England, that status as the head of the Canadian state is part of the constitution and who will take a constitutional amendment in order to change that. The next case that comes up in the book on this question of what is the role of the crown within the Canadian public law framework is McAteer in Canada, an Ontario Court of Appeal decision, which was a challenge to the constitutionality of the fact that the Citizenship Act requires that permanent residents of Canada who wish to become a Canadian citizen must swear an oath or make an affirmation which says, I swear or affirm that I will be faithful and bear true allegiance to her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II, Queen of Canada, her heirs and successors, and that I will faithfully observe the laws of Canada and fulfill my duties as a Canadian citizen. So no, this isn't a, a an allegiance to the idea of Canada, the values of Canada, the constitution of Canada. Rather, this is an allegiance that is required to be said in the law to become a citizen, an allegiance to the individual. Uh, on its face, on the text, to Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II, Queen of Canada. So this was challenged on the basis that the oath requirement was a violation of the right to freedom of conscience and religion and freedom of expression or equality, all of which are protected under the Charter. And the Court of Appeal said, no, this oath that you must swear does not violate the Constitution. Doesn't the oath perpetuate hereditary privilege contrary to the concept of equality? Isn't the requirement that the queen be Anglican antithetical to minorities' rights? These, these issues that we mentioned in relation to the last case. And the Court of Appeal said, no, that interpretation is based on the plain meaning of the words, which we reject. Aha, so I said, well, it's not an oath to the abstract concept, it's an oath to the person. The Court of Appeal said, no, you're looking at the plain meaning of the words, but you need to go deeper. You need to examine the history, 
purpose and intention behind that oath, and that shows it is not directed at the actual queen in her personal capacity. Instead, the court says, it is an oath to our form of government, as symbolized by the queen as the apex of the parliamentary system of constitutional monarchy. There is accordingly no violation of the right to freedom of conscience. The purpose of the oath is not to compel expression, it's not to compel you to say that you have a personal feeling towards this individual, but to rather obtain a commitment to a form of government. And interestingly enough, new citizens can publicly disavow the message conveyed by the oath. The charter protects your ability to free speech, and so you can make your oath and then say, but I sure don't respect that Queen Elizabeth person. It doesn't change the fact, though, that forcing new Canadians to say the oath is not a violation of the Charter, according to the Ontario Court of Appeal. In McAteer, the court referred to the institution of state that the Queen now represents. So what is that? Well, as I alluded to at the outset, it's important to remember the Queen has both legislative and executive functions. Legislative functions. Under Section 17 of the Constitution Act 1867, uh, that section provides for a Parliament of Canada consisting of the Queen, an upper house style, the Senate, and the House of Commons. So the Queen, the, the Crown, is explicitly part of the Parliament of Canada. Similarly, each province has a legislature that has a similar function with the Queen and a legislative body although they don't have um, an upper house like the Senate in the provinces. So what is the Queen's role within Parliament? Well, the Queen individually, Queen Elizabeth II, has no role in Parliament. She doesn't play any active role in Parliament at all. Rather, the Queen is represented within Parliament by the Governor-General of Canada. The Governor-General, whose role we'll examine more later, in turn appoints lieutenant governors in each province to play the same role. So this constitutionally contemplated role of the Queen within Parliament is played by the Governor-General for the Federal Parliament and the Lieutenant Governors for the respective provincial legislatures. And what role does the governor general and lieutenant generals play in the legislative process? Well, they summon, prorogue, and dissolve parliament or the provincial legislature. Effectively, they start a parliament, they can suspend a parliamentary session, and they can end a parliamentary session. The governor general, as the queen's representative, also grants royal assent to legislation, which we will talk about shortly. Another role of the Governor-General in the Canadian system is to make a speech from the throne. This is a speech that opens up a parliamentary session. And I'm going to now play an excerpt from the Right Honourable Julie Payette, the current Governor-General's speech from the throne to open up the 43rd session of Parliament, which she issued in December of uh, 2019. Honorable Senator and Senatrice, Députés de la Chambre des Communes, Mesdames et Messieurs, Je suis heureuse d'ouvrir la première session de la 43e législature du Canada. Je souhaite la bienvenue aux 98 nouveaux députés ainsi qu'à ceux et celles qui ont été réélus. Your predecessors first sat in Parliament in November 1867. Canada was barely five months old. On the scale of world history, we are still young. Yet, much of it's happened in the world since then. We have matured, and we are here, strong and free. The throne speech then goes on to set out the government's priorities for the legislative session. In this, the main priorities that high, are highlighted in the speech are climate change, middle-class economics, indigenous 
relations, safety and health, and Canada's place in the world. The speech is read by the Governor General, but it is written by the Prime Minister and officials in his or her office. And the throne speech is the official start of the legislative session. Until the speech has been read, no parliamentary business can take place, no bills, debates, or commons votes. So the throne speech is a major and often the most visible component of the Governor General's functions within Parliament. And as I mentioned, another function that the Governor General plays is to grant royal assent to legislation. What that means is that under the Constitution, legislation only becomes law when it is assented to, agreed to, consented to by the Queen or the King, by the monarch. That's set out in Section 55 of the Constitution Act 1867, which says, where a bill passed by the Houses of Parliament is presented to the Governor General for the Queen's assent, he shall declare, according to his discretion, but subject to the provisions of this Act and to Her Majesty's instructions, either that he assents thereto in the Queen's name, or that he withholds the Queen's assent, or that he reserves the bill for the signification of the Queen's pleasure. So this role is a discretion built into the Constitution, but by convention, which we'll talk about shortly, by constitutional convention, assent is not withheld. However, I'll briefly discuss a case where this question of whether assent can and ought to be withheld in some circumstances briefly. This is this came up in a case called Galati in Canada. It's a 2015 federal court case. It's not in the book. It's not on the test, but um, it's an interesting case nonetheless. So I'm going to briefly mention it. Um, so, so in 2014, the Governor General granted royal assent to Bill C-24, known as the Strengthening Canadian Citizenship Act, or called that at least. And this was a bill that amended the Citizenship Act and allowed the Minister of Citizenship and Immigration to revoke the citizenship of certain Canadian citizens that are convicted of crimes relating to national security or terrorism, where the citizen holds or could have a right to dual nationality. The act provides for the revocation of citizenship, which may lead to deportation. So this means that if you're born in Canada, you only have Canadian citizenship, you have no possible other right to another citizenship, the act doesn't apply to you. You can't have your citizenship revoked. However, if you were born elsewhere or you were born in Canada, but you have through your parentage or something else, a right to citizenship elsewhere, then you can have your citizenship revoked if you're convicted of certain offenses under this act. So a lawyer, Mr. Rocco Galati, who's launched a number of constitutional challenges aimed at questions of of governance and um, public law administration, he launched a judicial review in federal court challenging the decision of the governor general to grant royal assent to this legislation. So to be clear, as we'll discuss at length, all legislation can be subject to constitutional challenge after it is enacted. You can say it was outside the jurisdiction of the enacting parliament. That's the federalism analysis we'll be talking about in a few lectures times. And then you can also argue that it's inconsistent with the Charter of Rights and Freedoms or Section 35 of the Constitution Act 1982. Those are the Charter and Aboriginal Rights and Title issues we'll be talking about later on in the course. But what Mr. Galati tried to do was say, this isn't a charter challenge, but rather citizenship is an inalienable right within the Constitution. There's simply no constitutional power for Parliament to revoke people's citizenship. And because this legislation just falls outside of the constitutional competence of either parliament, uh, either the legislatures or the federal parliament, the governor general ought not to grant royal assent to this legislation. Brought an application for judicial review of the decision to grant royal assent, saying 
Governor General, you should have looked at this legislation and you should have said, you can't be revoking citizenship. I will not assent to this. You had the discretion, Mr. Galati's argument goes, you had the discretion, you needed to exercise it in a manner to not grant assent to this legislation. And so the federal court considered the question of whether this was a justiciable decision. Now, justiciability is the question of whether the court ought to decide a case. We'll see justiciability come up quite often in this course. And indeed, I didn't highlight it, but in the previous decision about secession, O'Donoghue in Canada, where the court decided that the Constitution couldn't be unconstitutional, that was actually decided on justiciability grounds. The idea that the court ought not to be applying the charter to analyze other provisions of the Constitution. So in an idea we're going to get to more later when we talk about the courts, the basic premise is that the superior courts have inherent jurisdiction. Their jurisdiction is complete. It's not a question of what issues they can consider, but rather justiciability is a question of what they ought to consider and where they ought to draw the line on making orders. So in this case, the question was, ought the court to rule that the governor general should have not given royal assent to this legislation. Was it justiciable? And the court said no. And the court said to understand why the role of the governor general in granting or withholding royal assent must be understood. While section 55 of the Constitution Act confers discretion, I read that at the outset of the discussion of this case, there is a discretion explicitly set out in that act while it confers a discretion on the governor general, that discretion is constrained by the constitutional convention of responsible government. Constitutional conventions are the unwritten rules that guide how the constitution is in practice administered. And again, we'll be talking about constitutional conventions in greater depth a bit later. And responsible government is the idea that the government will be responsible, will be accountable to the electorate. Ultimately, decisions that affect Canadians will be made by people who are responsible to Canadians in elections, generally speaking, or people appointed by people who are responsible to Canadians in elections, people appointed by elected officials or by elected officials themselves. The governor general does not exercise an independent discretion. Rather, the governor general acts on the advice of the prime minister. So the governor general's granting of royal assent is not discretionary. It's a non-discretionary legislative act. And why is that not justiciable? The court said, well, it's the separation of powers. Remember, we talked about the separation of powers at the end of last lecture. The courts exercise a supervisory jurisdiction once a law has been enacted, the court said. So once a law has been enacted, it's fair game for the courts to supervise it. But the federal court goes on, until that time, a court cannot review the legislative process. To conclude otherwise, the court says, would blur the boundaries that necessarily separate that necessarily separate the functions and roles of the legislature and the courts. The federal court goes on to say, on the theory advanced by Mr. Galati, the judiciary would adjudicate on the constitutionality of proposed legislation before it becomes law. That line, once crossed, would have no limit. If the decision to grant royal assent was justiciable, so too would be the decision to introduce legislation to introduce a bill in the Senate as opposed to the House, or to invoke closure. No principled line would limit the reach of judicial scrutiny into the legislative process. That's the federal court's words. So the idea here is that there's a line that must be crossed before the matter properly moves out of the legislative sphere and into the jurisdiction of the courts. 
and that is the bill becoming law, the granting of royal assent. And so the court says, separation of powers, recognition of the proper role for the legislature and the proper role of the courts doesn't allow us to blur that line. It doesn't allow us to say that we are going to step in and police the legislative process. So what does that all mean for our discussion of the governor general? Well, it means that the granting of royal assent, though a constitutionally mandated part of the legislative process, it has to happen for a bill to become law, does not mean that the queen or the queen's representative, the governor general, actually exercises an independent discretion in choosing whether or not to uh, pass a bill into law. What simply happens is the governor general gets the bill. On the advice of the prime minister, the governor general is to pass that bill into law. There's no independent check. There's no constitutional role to be played for the governor general or the queen to sit and think, well, I don't like this law, or even I don't think this law is constitutional. So that rounds out our thinking of the queen and her representative, the governor general's role within the Canadian system. You want to think that the role of the queen is constitutionally mandated within the legislative process. There are things that the queen and the governor general must do. Giving the speech from the throne is necessary to open up parliament. Granting royal assent is necessary for a bill to become law. Summoning, proroguing, and dissolving parliament or the provincial legislatures all must happen for those bodies to begin their work. And you must think also that the, the concept of the queen and the crown has a symbolic importance within the Canadian system. It is constitutional to demand that everyone swear an oath of allegiance to the queen to, to give them citizenship. And it also is something that ties Canada back to its colonial past and its status as a Commonwealth country within the greater historical British Empire, wherein the queen, the head of state for Canada, will be the ruler of England unless the constitution changes and will be subject to the same historic sexist discriminatory rules of the act of settlement and the rules of secession. So that is, in essence, what you need to take away to understand the role of the crown, the queen within the Canadian system, at least on the legislative side. When we talk about the executive branch, I'll mention a bit more about the queen um, and how powers are exercised in the name of the crown. So with that, we're going to move on to talk about the next part of Parliament, which is the Senate. So the Senate is a chamber of the federal legislature, and to become a law, a bill must be passed by both the House of Commons and the Senate. The Senate is somewhat unique within a modern democracy. As noted in the book, it's an unelected body. Senators are not elected. They are appointed by the governor general. Now, the principle of responsible governance that I mentioned earlier means that ultimately this appointment power needs to be uh, traceable back to an elected official. And so while the power formally lies with the governor general, the governor general only acts upon the advice of the prime minister. So the prime minister names individuals to be appointed to the Senate, and the governor general then actually carries out the appointment. There are 105 senators, and each represents a province or a territory. So the House of Commons, which we'll discuss in greater depth in a few moments, has a riding system. Every member of parliament, every member of the House of Commons represents a smaller geographic district than a whole province. 
senators, on the other hand, are represent that represent an entire province. Every province has some number of senators. Now, the number of senators which each province has does not correspond with population. It's set out in the constitution. So, British Columbia, for example, has a population of around four and a half million people and six senators. Quebec, on the other hand, has a population of eight million or so, a little more than eight million, and 24 senators. The requirements to qualify as a senator are set out in Section 23 of the Constitution Act. And to be a senator, the only requirements that are in the actual Constitution are that a person must be at least 30 years of age, a Canadian or British citizen, and must own land within the province that they are appointed to represent, land valued at over $4,000. There's a mandatory retirement age for senators of 75 years, and the fact that senators are appointed and not elected is controversial. There have been at least 28 major proposals for constitutional Senate reform since the early 1970s, and they've, they've all failed. In, in the 1990s, Alberta passed a law called the Senatorial Selection Act, which provided for elections in Alberta for their senators. So new senators would be elected. And in 99, Prime Minister Jean Chrétien decided not to appoint the two individuals elected by Albertans. So the Alberta, the province, passes provincial law that says their senators are going to be elected. And then John Chrétien says, well, I see that you've elected these individuals, but those aren't who I'm going to choose to be the senators that I'm going to appoint from your province. And so I'm going to talk quickly about another case that's not in the book, not on your test, but is interesting because, again, it illustrates some fundamental features about a component of the Canadian public law system, a case called Brown in Alberta. This is a 99 Alberta Court of Appeal case. So one of these disappointed senators sues and says to the court, I, I want you to declare that the provisions of the Canadian Constitution providing for the appointment of senators by the governor general are contrary to democratic principles and that to conform with the principles of democracy Senators must be selected in a manner consistent with the process of the Senatorial Selection Act. That is the Alberta legislation. So saying, to conform with democracy, you must respect the decision by Alberta to have the Senatorial Selection Act and have their senators subject to an election. And so told the court that the purpose of the declaration, so what was it that Mr. Brown asked the court to do give him, to grant him? Well, it was a declaration. So a declaration, what is a declaration? It's when the court declares something about the law or about the application of facts to the law. Declarations are made by the court. They don't have independent force apart from declaring what the law is, but it's expected that declarations will be followed, especially by the government who is bound to follow the law. So if the court says this is the law, if the court declares it, the idea was this would put significant pressure on the government to follow the Alberta elections and to appoint Mr. Brown as a senator. It should be now sort of triggering in your mind, well, the courts are going to be telling the prime minister who to appoint. This might raise a separation of powers issue. And this might raise questions of the proper role of the courts vis-a-vis -vis the other branches of government. So indeed, the Court of Appeal dealt first with the question of whether Mr. Brown's um, seeking a declaration raised a justiciable issue. Again, remember, justiciability is the question of whether the court ought to decide a case. Their powers are extensive. They presumably can issue the declaration sought, but ought they to is the question. And the Court of Appeal said, no, this is not justiciable. This is not something we ought to be delving into. Fundamentally, this would be a decision that would be purely political in nature. It would be a, 
political decision as to whether the federal government chose to follow an act of the provincial government, which was not binding upon it. The court said, you're trying, you're trying to do, Mr. Brown has put political pressure on the federal government to follow the Alberta law. The court said that is not good enough to raise a justiciable issue. You can't come to the courts just for the role of seeking to put political pressure on another branch of government. Now, whether that ratio, as it were, would extend into all other cases, I think is is probably not very clear or true. Um, there are other decisions where the courts have issued declarations which put political pressure and even the Cotter case that we talked about before would seem to primarily have done just that, to put political pressure on the prime minister. But regardless, the fundamental takeaway from this case is to think about the idea that the province of Alberta tried to say, let's move away from this unelected senatorial model. What we'll do is we'll um, advise the prime minister on who to appoint, who the prime minister should in turn provide as per the constitutional convention to provide advice to the governor general to appoint. We will have this process to have an election to choose the people who we think should be put forward. And this did not work. The prime minister didn't follow the advice and the courts wouldn't enforce the advice or even give a declaration saying that the advice should be followed. So the notion that an individual province could change the nature of the Senate by instituting elections fails in this Brown and Alberta case, which again is not in your book, not on your exam, but illustrates an earlier effort at senatorial reform. So that sets the stage for the, the big senatorial reform case, which is in your book, the 2014 Senate reference. And before jumping into that case, I'm just going to say a word or two about a reference case. So the Supreme Court of Canada can hear questions of law that are put to them by the federal government. This is what's called a reference. The federal government can say, we are thinking about doing this and we want to know if you will agree it's constitutional. We'll see a number of high-profile references in the course of this case. And this was the high-profile reference about the plan to change the Senate appointment process and to change a number of things about the Senate that was proposed by the um, Stephen Harper government, the conservative government, who had a, a long and very legitimate dislike and distrust of the unelected Senate. And so after the Harper government came into power in 2006, it repeatedly put forward both proposals for constitutional reform and ordinary legislation, both aimed at altering and even abolishing the Senate. And these proposals didn't get through, didn't, didn't become law, they, they withered and died for various reasons. And to give you a sense as to the, the rancor and the debate that happened around these proposals, I'm going to play a bit of a clip which had um, a debate in Parliament as between Thomas Mulclair, the leader of the opposition at the time, and Stephen Harper, the Prime Minister at the time, on the question of Senate reform. The Honourable Leader of the Opposition. A few minutes ago, the Prime Minister turned around to his House Leader to get information on Bill C-7. He might have looked at the wrong date because it was indeed on February 27th that this bill was last debated, but that's today. You see, it was one year ago today that we actually debated this bill for the last time. They've done nothing in the meantime. Prime Minister wants unanimous consent. Here it is. Start working with the provinces and territories to abolish the Senate. You'll get unanimous consent from us. Order, order the right honourable Prime Minister. 
Well, of course, Mr. Speaker, here's the dodge from the leader of the NDP. He doesn't, he doesn't want to have an elected Senate, so he tries to turn it over, say, get the provinces to do it so he can hide behind the various premiers, Mr. Speaker, knowing that that isn't going to happen. The reality is this, Mr. Speaker, we know that what he really wants, the reason the NDP has 17 times in this House blocked this piece of legislation because they don't want elected senators, because they want to appoint their own. But guess what, Mr. Speaker? The people of Canada are never going to give them that chance. So you get a bit of a sense as to the feistiness of the Senate debate. And indeed, that clip on YouTube, I think, is called something like Stephen Harper gets feisty over the Senate. So what you hear in that clip, though, is interesting. So you hear the idea of elected senators, and that is what the Harper government was pushing for. And you hear the opposition, the NDP, saying, go get unanimous consent. Well, what are they getting at when they say, go get unanimous consent? Well, they're saying, go get the unanimous consent of the provinces and amend the constitution, and then you can have you know, Senate reform. So this was the live question that ends up being put to the Supreme Court of Canada within the 20. 14 decision on the Senate reference, the question of, well, if you want to change the Senate, how do you do it? Do you need to get the unanimous consent of the provinces? Do you need to amend the Constitution at all? What Senate reforms would be within the power of the federal government if they were to not go ahead and get the consent of all the provinces and go through with the constitutional amendment. Could they get to an elected Senate without that? And this is fundamentally answering the dispute as between Mr. Montclair and Mr. Harper as to whether or not the NDP, you know, frankly, needed to give a position on a bill to make senators elected, because if it was something that would require a constitutional amendment, then the federal parliament acting alone was insufficient. So this case, the Senate reform reference, raises squarely the notion of constitutional amendment. However, this is not the part of the course where I'm going to focus on the amending formulas, the constitutional amendment, sort of what it says about the Canadian constitution. We are going to get to that in the lectures shortly. Um, however, what this case does with the constitutional amendment, it, it's helpful to know that there are two formulas that are pertinent for this case for constitutional amendment. There are some constitutional amendments that do require the unanimous consent of all of the provinces, plus the federal legislature. And there are some constitutional amendments that require only a two-thirds majority of the provinces that represent 50% of the population. In practice, that means you need to get seven provinces on board, and those seven provinces must represent 50% of the population, which effectively means that if Ontario and Quebec are against something, even if you get the other eight provinces on board, you're not going to get that 50% threshold. Oh, and I should mention there's a third formula that comes to play, actually, in the Senate reference, and that is the uh, unilateral procedure, which is a process that allows the federal government to amend the Constitution unilaterally when the amendment at issue only affects federal interests. So the, the constitutional question that is raised is one of um, which amending formula is going to apply to these various Senate reforms. And in answering that, the Supreme Court of Canada first delves into the more fundamental question of you know, what is the purpose of the Senate? And the court, and this is a judgment written by the court in general, it's no, no judge individually puts their name on this judgment, rather they speak with a united single voice. The court says, well, the original purpose of the Senate was twofold. First, it was modeled after the UK House of Lords as a chamber of appointed elites who would offer sober second thought on legislation adopted by the elected representatives in the House. So the idea you'd have this appointed body that would provide a check against, against the vicissitudes of the 
elected group in the House of Commons. And second, it was aimed at giving um, representation to different regions, regardless of population, to allow a, a regional dynamic to be brought into the Senate. And if you think about the United States Senate, it accomplishes that second purpose now, where every state has the same number of senators, too. You know, and Wyoming has a tiny fraction of the population of California, and yet it has the same representation in the Senate. Well, the same idea of regional as opposed to population-based representation is worked into the Senate framework for Canada. So the question is, which of the amending formulas needs to be adopted in order to change the Senate in the ways proposed if any constitutional amendment is required at all. And the first question is, does the use of consultative elections require an amendment to the Constitution? If so, of what kind? So thinking back to that Brown and Alberta case, there we had the provinces implementing, or one province, Alberta, implementing a consultative election in order to decide who was going to be appointed to the Senate, a, a way to make the appointment by the governor general based on an election. Of course, that was the province and the federal decision maker, the prime minister, decided not to feel bound by that election. However, if the federal government were to implement an election process, and pass a law saying the prime minister shall appoint um, the or shall nominate to the governor general for appointment the winner of this election. The question is, does that constitute something that is an amendment to the Senate that would require a constitutional amendment? And the attorney general of Canada, on behalf of the government, who supported that law, argue that no amendment was required, or if one was required, that the unilateral procedure would suffice. That is, it argued that amending the Senate selection for uh, procedure was fundamentally a matter of federal interest, and it was something the federal government could do on its own, if even indeed it needed to amend the Constitution at all to accomplish that. And the Supreme Court of Canada said no. They said consultative elections would require an amendment to the Constitution, and in fact, it would fundamentally alter the architecture of the Constitution. And that is because it would modify the Senate's role as a legislative body of sober second thought removed from the partisan political arena and the consideration of short-term politics. The idea here is that you change the nature of the Senate fundamentally if you make it a democratic, directly democratically elected institution. The idea here was that you would not have a Senate and a House of Commons in competition. That was not the framer of the uh, Constitution's idea. The idea was instead that the two bodies would complement each other and accomplish different outcomes. And you can look at the problems that can happen in the United States where, for instance, now there's a democratically, um, or the Democrats are in the majority in the um, House of Representatives, whereas the Republicans are in the majority in the Senate, and they clearly do compete over the legislative um, agenda of the day. Yeah, so the idea is that um, by having an unelected body, the framers had, the, um, had in mind that the Senate would overrule the House only in rare circumstances where it was absolutely necessary. And so having elections would require amending the Constitution and use the general amending formula, the seven provinces representing 50% of the population because it would concern the method of selecting senators. They next moved on to the question of what about a law that included term limits for senators? So you'd serve for some number of years and that would be that. And the court again says that that would amend the Constitution because Section 29.2 of the Constitution Act 
explicitly provides that senators may serve until they are 75 years old. There's a mandatory retirement age in the Constitution, and you can't read a Constitution that provides only for retirement at 75 as a mandatory um, end of a senator's term as also allowing to impose a shorter term. And the idea there, again, is that if a senator is able to not concern themselves with a shorter term um, time in power, they rather have this long window, it can provide a, a complementary vision of governance rather than a uh, competition, perhaps, with the House of Commons. So to amend term limits, the court says, again, this would be a general amending formula matter, the seven provinces accounting for 50% of the population. And finally, on the question of abolishing the Senate outright, getting rid of it as a part of the Canadian legislature, this would require unanimous consent, as this would fundamentally alter the structure of the Constitution itself. So the Senate reference is then a helpful case as it introduces the concept of the amending formulas. And it talks about the fundamental nature of the Senate, that is, it's not to be a democratically directly elected body which competes with the House. It's rather to be a appointed body that provides this sober second thought. And the idea there is that the, the Senate should not feel like it has the democratic legitimacy that would come with being elected. It ought not to think that it's governing with the force of the will of the people behind it. Rather, recognizing its status as an appointed body, it should have restraint. And generally, that is what the Senate does. The Senate provides ordinarily commentary on legislation, proposes amendments to legislation, sometimes opposes legislation, but often backs down in that opposition. That's not to say, though, that matters never die in the Senate. That does happen, and it happens on very important pieces of legislation at times. So the Senate does play an important role, and it does have the formal power to kill legislation, to refuse to pass things out of the Senate. However, this is very rarely used in the Canadian context, and generally speaking, what you want to think about the Senate as doing is providing advice and input, minor changes, very rare opposition, and generally seeing itself as that body of sober second thought, as is contemplated within the reference on the Senate reform. So that's the Senate. And we'll move on now to talk about the most important for legislative um, purposes, the most important component of the legislature, which is the House of Commons. So the House of Commons is, of course, the elected component of the legislature. And it's where the real legislative power is ordinarily wielded. The House of Commons has 338 members, and each represents one geographic area within Canada known as a riding. So each riding has a member of parliament that represents it, and we'll get into momentarily how the ridings are drawn, which is a very important decision. And if you look at uh, some of the experiences that the United States has had with uh, gerrymandering, you can see how where you draw these lines can be a very political decision. But before we get into that, I want to briefly give people a flavor of what the House of Commons is like, because it can be a very rowdy place. And the prime minister and the leader of the opposition and the leader of the other parties, they come together and they will all appear and talk in the House of Commons during question period, where the government will defend its legislation, its priorities, its governance, and the opposition will say that they're doing a bad job and the people who are supportive of the government or the opposition will cheer or boo as the case may be and if you haven't had a chance to see it in action it's it's worthwhile to have a look um, the scope of this course is about the governance structure of the 
Canadian system. So we won't be getting into the nuances of the operation of the House of Commons, which is really more of a political science subject. But just to give you a flavor of what um, this question period debate can be like, and because I'm having a bit of fun pulling these clips off the internet and putting them in the podcast, I'm going to give you a little example of a back and forth from earlier this year, from February 2020, February 24th, 2020, right before coronavirus really changed everything. So this is a bit of a blast from the past. And um, this is a discussion as between um, Prime Minister Trudeau and uh, leader of the opposition, um, Andrew Scheer. Mr. Speaker, the members opposite continue to refuse to understand that the world is changing, that you can no longer build a strong economy if you are not fighting climate change at the same time. That is something uh, that the members opposite have refused. I just want to remind the honourable members of the loyal opposition that they did ask a question and they are waiting for an answer. No, shouting is not going to make the answer any different, the honourable Prime Minister. Global investors have indicated that they need to see strong action on climate change. Uh, Canadians from coast to coast to coast want to see good jobs, but want to see stronger action on climate change. It is only the Conservative Party uh, of Canada and its provincial counterparts that are standing against climate action and hurting our economy and jobs because of it. The Honourable Leader of the Opposition. The Prime Minister doesn't understand that these decisions are a repudiation of his policies. Now, Tech Frontier was told that they had to lower their emissions, so they came up with industry-leading standards and had the lowest intensity of emissions in the sector. They were told that they had to consult with Indigenous communities. They did so, got partnership agreements with the 14 First Nations communities that were affected by it. They were told that the government of Alberta's industrial emitters policy would have to reach equivalency. This government granted that ex uh, equivalency just last week. What else was Tech Frontier supposed to do to get a project built in this country, Mr. Speaker? The right honourable Prime Minister. The Conservatives continue to say uh, that this project didn't move forward uh, because of this government's leadership on climate. Well, let me point out what Tech itself actually says. Tech. I just want to remind the members that intimidating someone who's speaking is not a good way to have a friendly back and forth. So shouting, I just want to remind everyone not to shout during question period. Right Honourable Prime Minister. Okay, Mr. Speaker, they're not intimidating me. Tech said clearly, we support strong actions to enable the transition to a low-carbon future. Tech is also strong supporters of Canada's action on climate pricing and other climate uh, policies such as legislated caps for oil sands emissions. It is the Conservative Party polarizing the debate on climate change that is putting our economy at risk. You know that, so I hope you get a bit of a sense as to the, the rowdiness, the way this um, actually is conducted in practice, um, where people are shouting at one another, the uh, Speaker of the House, that's the person who in the, interrupted a few times to ask the Conservative Party to be, to be nice. Um, we'll try to perhaps keep order, but uh, generally speaking, it is a, it's a rowdy process and there's a, there's yelling and there's cheering and um, and that's what the House of Commons is like and has traditionally been like and will presumably continue to be like and if you are interested it's a fascinating area for, for study if you're in Ottawa you're allowed to go and watch question period which is a great experience I'd highly recommend it to anyone but I'm going to uh, leave sort of the mechanisms of what happens in the house behind and speak a bit now about the question of how these ridings are drawn. Because as I did say, it's extremely important for determining who's going to represent whom to decide what areas are going to share a representative. And what you want, uh, presumably, is effective representation. And this means that people who share a common interest can share a common representative. So if you have 40% of the population in one area is strongly uh, conservative, say, and 60% is strongly liberal, 
Well, having that group share a representative would most likely mean that the representative is going to be elected by the liberal majority, and that 40% of strongly conservative people is going to have no representation. Whereas if a, a um, riding can be drawn so as to allow people who who share a certain worldview and certain interests, perhaps rural, perhaps an ethnic uh, group, to share who share some identity, to allow them to have a representative who can represent them may lead to a more representative body as a whole. At the same time, of course, the political parties have a strong interest in drawing these ridings so as to maximize their vote. You know, they would want to cut it so that every riding was going to go just to them, so they would uh, be able to spread out their vote into as many ridings as they possibly could. This is the gerrymandering issue that has come up so much in the United States. And the way that it is tried to be avoided in Canada is through having a nonpartisan electoral boundary commission that will decide upon the new ridings for a province. And these are ordinarily chaired by a judge chosen by the Chief Justice of the province. And I had the chance to speak once with a judge who had that role, Judge Hall um, of the Court of Appeal of British Columbia. And he explained to me how he took this job incredibly seriously and how he and his wife got in their car and they drove to every riding, every corner of the province for a whole summer, just visiting town after town after town, getting to meet people, getting to know people, taking notes on what he saw, and trying to understand the real character of the locations so he could understand you know, who ought to be represented together. So the question that comes up though in the case that we have in the case book at page 201 is whether these writings need to be drawn so that every riding has an equal number of people or a close to equal number of people? Or can the ridings be drawn so there's fairly significant differences in the number of people who are represented in different ridings? So in this electoral boundaries case, this was a, a reference as well, as you'll see, um, the Independent Electoral Commission in Saskatchewan recommended voting districts that varied in terms of population now, Section 3 of the Charter of Rights and Freedom says that every citizen of Canada has the right to vote in an election of members of the House of Commons or of a Legislative Assembly. So the government of Saskatchewan launched a reference arguing that the boundaries that were set violated Section 3. And the question was, were the boundaries drawn in Saskatchewan unconstitutional since voters in different districts had different levels of voting power? because there were different numbers of people per representative. So if you had a thousand people in one, in one riding, just hypothetically, with one representative and the riding one over had 500 people to one representative, well then you might say that every individual's vote in that 500 person riding counted for double. They had twice the direct representation they had one five hundredth of a member of parliament instead of one one thousandth. So that was effectively the argument that was put forward. And the Supreme Court of Canada said, no, this does not violate the charter to have different numbers of people in different ridings. They say section three of the charter does not protect equality of voting per se, rather it protects the right to effective representation. Effective representation not strictly equal representation. So what are the elements of this effective representation? The court said one, relative parity of voting power. The example I gave 500 to 1,000 probably wouldn't pass muster. But if it's close, if it's close enough, then, and, and recognizing absolute parity is impossible, then a, a relative parity is an element of effective representation, but is not the only factor. Other relevant factors, geography, community history, community interests, and minority representation can also be taken into account, and you need not sacrifice all these things simply to achieve the most even 
representation, the most even parity of voting power. So absolute voter parity would require massive districts in sparsely populated areas, which would make it very difficult for citizens to gain access to their representative. So you think of a vast stretch of, of the northern country that has got very few people, and if you're going to have to get the same number of people into that riding as you have in a riding in a dense Toronto or Vancouver center, you are going to have to make that riding gigantic, and it's going to take many, many hours for most people to drive to you know, where their member of parliament might have their constituency offices. So the court rejected an American view that a, a one-person, one-votes um, theory ought to govern, and noted instead that throughout Canadian history, the emphasis has always been on this effective representation. So that's a, a thing to take away when you think about what is the nature of a member of parliament? What's the nature of the riding that they come from? Well, it's a riding that is drawn with an aim at achieving effective representation by allowing people with similar geographic um, and cultural and group identities to have somebody who can represent those interests within parliament. So that concludes our discussion of chapter six on parliament and its components. And just to recap, we covered three components, the monarch slash governor general, the Senate and the House of Commons. And the key takeaways that you want to have are the role of the monarch and the governor general within the parliamentary system is uh, necessary and constitutionalized. Laws cannot um, go into law, into force, without receiving royal assent. Parliament cannot open a session without a throne speech. And the governor general has the former power to summon and prorogue and suspend a parliamentary session. And we learned about the Senate and how the Senate is an unelected body that has the role of providing sober second thought and providing geographic representation that is detached from population. And we learned that how in practice the Senate rarely overrules the House of Commons and that it won't move its legislation through the Senate, but it does happen sometimes. But we learned that more often the Senate offers amendments and changes and study of the issues that are uh, raised in legislation considered by the government and brought through the House of Commons. And we learned about the House of Commons and, and how it's a, it's a rowdy place and how the um, House of Commons is based on the idea of a, a series of ridings that will guarantee effective representation to Canadians. But that doesn't mean one person, one vote. They don't have to have exactly the same number of people in them or you don't even have to really try to do that. What you have to do is try to give ridings that will give all Canadians an effective voice as much as possible within Parliament. So with those as the key takeaways, I um, will be moving on in the next part of this lecture to Chapter 8. And as I indicated in my email, Chapter 7 I am making optional. Chapter 7 um, breaks down the functions of Parliament in greater detail. If you are unfamiliar with the Canadian process, it could be quite helpful for your public law framework. I don't think it's as necessary, however, for the purposes of this course and to have the grounding to handle the balance of the material to have that grip on section on chapter 7. So I will be moving on to chapter 8 to talk about the executive, which is a very important topic to understand um, in order to uh, have a foundation for some of the material that's coming soon, including the discussion of administrative law.